All right, everybody, welcome to Club Soft. This is episode 31, in other words, season two, episode six. And our guest, our very special guest today is Dr. Ben Dawkins. Um, are you there, Ben? I am. I'm right here. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do before our first segment. Uh, Ryan, would you like to begin? Yeah, I wouldn't mind. It is an announcement we that have. we have to make. Definitely. Um, after careful consideration and consultation with the team here at Clubsoft, uh, we have decided to join Twitter and Facebook and Pinterest and TikTok in deplatforming Donald Trump. Yes. Donald Trump so, is off the table. He's formally banned from appearing on the podcast, as is anyone who worked in his administration or is, you know, in his sphere, with two exceptions. Scarmucci is allowed on the podcast still, and so is Barron. Now, now we do have our people reaching out to both of those individuals, so... Yeah, Mooch is a lot of fun. I mean, that's the thing, is that he was only in the administration for about 15 minutes, and he's a lot of fun. So he's allowed on a Baron, Obviously, you know, he's a child, and you want to respect that. But also, like, we, he never said we, – we just assume he knows something. Yeah, he's got to know something about something. So we'd be like, yeah, what's – so we'd have him on. But anybody else in the Trump sphere, including Trump himself, is officially banned – from Clubsoft. Yes. So, um, platforming. Yeah. So there we go. We've made our big announcement. Um, Donald Trump will not use us as a bullhorn. That's right. And honestly, like he's banned from so many outlets. It's probably only a matter of time before he hits us up. Yeah. Yeah. We have a steady audience of about six people. You hear that Donald Trump? We will not be your bully pulpit. <laughs> Now, that out of the way, um, I would like to uh, – so our, we're going to get started with our first segment, um, Dead Beat, which I, I was trying to write a theme song for, but I pretty much just got like a – you know, if I play a C minor, it might be pretty good. Do you know, just – now it's time for – That's outstanding, yeah. Dead Beat. Let it ring yeah, out. Yeah, that's great. Okay, great. Okay, I will let it ring out next week. I was I was just reacting in real time. This oh time. no 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 that's uh, that's absolutely okay. that's absolutely the um, approval level I need to keep going. Okay. Um, all right. So today's deadbeat is from January twenty third, nineteen sixty one. Sixty years ago today, in the New York Times, the title is. Samuel T. Lawton, lawyer and soldier. Dateline, Chicago, January 22. Lieutenant General Samuel T. Lawton, soldier, lawyer, and chairman of the Chicago Zoning Board of Appeals since 1948, died today at Michael Reese Hospital. He was 76 years old. As a major general, he commanded the 33rd Division from May 1940 until May 1942, one of the few top National Guard commanders to retain his post after the units were activated for federal service. Later in the war, he was in charge of the defense of the locks at Saul Samari. 
He was named commander of the Illinois National Guard at the end of World War II and supervised the reorganization of the Guard on a peacetime basis. He retired in 1946 to resume his Chicago law practice. He was a National Guard captain in 1916 when troops were sent to the Mexican border and served in France with the 122nd Field Artillery, which saw combat duty in the Saint-Miel and Meuse-Argonne campaigns. He was admitted to the bar in 1905 after graduation from Chicago's John Marshall Law School. His son and law partner, Samuel Jr., and a brother, two sisters, and three grandchildren survived. And that's it. That, that thus concludes. So I, I, a couple just like pieces of just a, a couple condiments to spice this story up a little bit. Okay. Um, I, when I was trying to do additional research on Samuel T. Lawton, you know, it says at the end is his son and uh, law partner, Samuel Lawton Jr. died in 2003. Mm-hmm. So Sam Lawton Jr. Uh, was also a lawyer. He went to Harvard Law. He also fought in World War II, as his father did. And uh, then he became a pioneering environmental lawyer. Really? He was an environmental lawyer before that was even a thing. Uh, When the EPA was first created in, I think, 1970, something like that, he became the – he was the first person to serve on the – what was called the Pollution Control Board – and so began practicing environmental law and working for tougher pollution standards. That's Sam Lawton Jr. And a World War II vet. So the Lawtons, I mean, the thing with Lawton Sr. to me that was very interesting was, A, this, like, lawyer slash commander mm-hmm. practicing both at the same time. But just that he was so involved and, and at it for so long. He fought in world in both world wars and uh, during the Mexican Revolution, when Pancho Villa was doing his raids across the border and the National Guard was mobilized to guard the border, uh, he was there for that, too, in 1916. So it was, there's was a lot of major historical events that he was there for and, uh, and then was pretty much a, a, a practicing attorney other than that. And his son was a pioneering environmental lawyer. So the Lawtons of Chicago... Hither, hitherto unknown to me, uh, I salute them. Nice. Here, here. Now, so, so how do you respond to this, Ben? Well, just just fascinated by the the idea that that there was a point when people had to have the idea to start taking care of our planet because. In my lifetime, it's been a growing issue, and um, and if I remember correctly, the uh, the EPA was established by executive order. It was a, a President Nixon executive order, and so when you think of the former blackest of the black sheep from the uh, the Grand Old Party established the EPA, and you hear what. What goes on in uh, public discourse around the EPA now? It's just, it's staggering that uh, where the idea would come from and how it would be originally championed. Well, so yeah, I mean, I guess that, that was what I was wanting to touch on, and uh, in some respects, I don't think of our troops as being particularly interested in the Earth, and why is that? Do you know? It's. 
it's really hard to tell with that sort of thing because it um, it comes down to the the just general ambivalence to to certain scientific knowledge and to that process in general and and I I think it's it's been building since. I was very young. And so it's, it's very difficult to, to as somebody who, who can trust the, the scientific process and the, the development of the way our body of knowledge grows and changes and refines itself, that there are folks who can just say, oh, that's, that's a big sham. It's always been a sham, big Democrat sham. A big Democrat sham. Yeah, the, I mean, the development of, you know, I, I, do, I think it's interesting that credit is given to Democrats in particular for sure, accumulating sure. verifiable data. Well, and you know, <laughs> you know, it's... I think everybody should, I think Democrats should take that one on. Be like, I, we are I the think... party of actual data. <laughs> and you know... I don't think I don't think the Democratic Party would be argued with on that particular platform. Not us. Not us. Yeah. We're about we're about rumor and conspiracy. That's what we like. Well, the the only pushback I have, Eric, is I, I don't know about the the troops per se, but I'd say I think you're onto something with the military though, which is okay. an enormous contributor. To carbon emissions and to, to climate change. Absolutely. Enormously. I mean, the Pentagon is, I mean, as you'd imagine, right? We've got 800 bases uh, around the world, um, and and often like really horrible um, environmental practices involved with military operations. Which is to say, nothing about the environmental degradation of bombs and missiles being dropped. But I'd say the but the the troops. This is one of the places where it's very useful to tease out like the Pentagon versus you know, the rank and file is that um, as with every environmental catastrophe, there's a public health catastrophe. And there are so many ways in which uh, U.S. soldiers, both who serve on bases here and uh, even more so when they when they're deployed abroad, mm. uh, the number of poisons and toxins that they're mm-hmm. exposed to is atrocious, absolutely atrocious. And there's so many examples of it. The one that got probably has the most uh, like cultural cachet that I think most people know about is Agent Orange for Vietnam vets. Yes. Yeah. But for Iraq and Afghanistan vets, there's several different types of exposure um, that is still being studied and not very well understood. And at every turn, the Pentagon denies culpability. So I would say, you know, when it's uh, – I mean, it's one of the interesting things to me is that there's there's – always a very clear link between environmental degradation and public health and veterans are a category of people who suffer disproportionately from this and i don't know that people really think of it that way and i think we should Hmm. that's an interesting point um i i don't i mean the first thing what i what i was thinking of just right at the beginning of what you were talking about was you know i was thinking of this sort of nefarious link between you know, post World War Two industry and the military yeah. whole thing and the standing military and that being sort of disconnected from environmental things as well. Do you know? I don't know how much of that 
plays a role, you know. I definitely, I've definitely been the benefactor of, you know, one one environmental disaster that was somewhat of our making and somewhat not of our making that I had personally been a part of was when the levees broke in the Mississippi River in the year 1993. Um, and the Army Corps of Engineers showed up, you know, and directed sandbagging efforts. And they did the same sorts of things in lots of sort of yeah. natural disasters, whether they were precipitated by, you know, I, that, that's that's another part of it too. It's like sort of like, um, I'm getting a little confused here as far as the chronology of things but like anybody can draw a straight line between overdredging like a major waterway and the disastrous effects of a flood you know as to like people had something to do with that you know people didn't make it happen but people made it worse do you know what I mean when it finally became an issue and you know it's easy to draw a line between the dust bowl and poor agricultural practices you know it's pretty easy to things that we would class as natural disasters a lot of them we contributed to <laughs> like yeah the idea that there's this huge jump between climate change and like digging too deep in the ground is just really confusing to me well and these these processes you're describing without without the uh, the man-made climate change these these floods these storm seasons these dry seasons were were essential parts of the ecology mm-hmm. and um, and allowed for sort of um, sustainable renewal just within, that ecosystem and and i think i think it's interesting that um that 1970 is the year that um that the epa really got going because a big thing i think about post-world war ii the or a major bit of infrastructure progress would be the the interstate highway system Mm -hmm. and and so you you had the the brass, particularly President Eisenhower, coming back just enamored with the the autobahn concept, yeah, and um, and enacting it on a significantly grander scale here. And as that was happening, my my understanding is the the public concern increased steadily throughout the fifties and. The, I want to say uh, RCA, Resources and Conservation Act, was late 50s, somewhere in there. And so it took another another 11, 12 years before it reached that tipping point where there would be a, a federal agency. Mm. Yeah. Also, and, and to, the, to, your, to your point on uh... – the seasons and ecology. I think that, you know, I brought this up a couple of weeks ago and I think you'd have to agree with me uh, that storm from the X-Men was behaving hugely irresponsibly. Um, <laughs> I mean, contributed 
greatly to climate change. I said this a couple of weeks ago on the show, but it's, I mean, you can't just have a blizzard in the summer. That's going to well, have ramifications. And, you know, the greater superpower is really not using it. I mean, come on. It's not <laughs> the greatest right. comic book, but it is, it is mature. There's <laughs> restraint with your superpowers that I respect. I mean, why, why do they call him Cyclops? It's because he has that visor on. Whenever that visor, that's that's control. That's restraint. That's power. Yeah. Right. The, the the real superhero does not need to shoot laser out of his eyes. That's right. Yeah, he that's right. Problems with dialogue. Oh yes. <laughs> Dialogue and zen-like mental control. Yeah, yeah. And lasers if it comes to it. Ah, uh, true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you have to have the laser option. It's yes. nice to have it in the back pocket. <laughs> so, so, I mean, what – I feel like every random person's attitude – I think this is something I wanted to pivot to what I was thinking of during the whole deadbeat segment was that what are people's attitudes how have be, how, how in your lifetime Ben and Ryan um how have people's attitudes changed via people who are have military service and are active or you know and the whole gamut so are we are we talking mainly about the the environmental public health or the um just general world views no and, just and perhaps yeah just like uh, you meet a somebody who's a soldier do you know what i mean sure it's like kind of like my early my own early sort of conception of that was my grandparents do you know mm-hmm all of whom were drafted, you know, and, you know, they, they went and they got, had stories about it and all this kind of thing. And all their old buddies were there. And by the time I was able to understand what that was, they're like either pillars of the community type of people, or just like regular people that are part of this club of people who've had military service. And so, you know, well, so I've had a few different experiences, but the the one that that jumps out to me a lot, okay. and and it's a it's especially relevant for me right now, and I'll I'll get into that in just a moment. Is um, is I see with the the veterans who are in my life and who have been in my life a either an understanding of potential purpose or a search for potential purpose. And where I, where I bring that up is um, I, I recall very, very vividly a, uh, a friend's uh, friend's grandfather in middle and high school. And he was the, uh, he was at the time the most decorated living American soldier was uh, assistant commandant of the Marine Corps and just totally, totally involved in the community. And 
just always around and you you always saw this general and uh, and so if you if you lived in this area south southeast atlanta you you at least even if you didn't know his name if if you saw him he's like oh i i saw that guy at uh, the eagle ceremony or the choir concert or the football game and the the other side of that coin which is really very difficult especially once i became more aware of it i i had a a dear friend and former roommate who was a uh, a former navy enlisted man and uh was um was in the the Persian Gulf in the uh, the early 2000s and um, basically was the I don't know a ton about enlisted um, Navy ranks, but he was he was somewhere around sergeant level, mm. non non commissioned officer kind of deal. But there was he spent the time I knew him getting technical technical certifications and uh wanted to work in uh, in automotive and auto body and uh and after he finished school which uh i mean he went after went after school with with serious purpose but but afterwards it was very difficult and um and just the the psychological issues there and he ended up he ended up taking his life and it was just awful but um but that was that was seven years ago yesterday that that happened Mm. and i i think about him this time of year and one of the things i remember him saying to me was while he was in the military he had he had a specific job he had a specific purpose he knew who he was and he knew what he was doing and one of the one of the difficult things especially with veterans relations in our country, which is really a very sad state of affairs, is that is that to me I've seen many times that that purpose is either found within a community or within larger organizations, businesses, charities, um, the educational system, that sort of thing, or there there's there are these re-entry issues, and um, and it really bears down in a in a difficult and in many times tragic way. And so it's it's tough to it's tough to examine, but it's it's something that I I feel like is worthy of discussion and worthy of worthy of just careful study, even even by just people around the dinner table talking talking about members of their family who have served and what that means. Mm-hmm. But there, there seems to be a disconnect for me with the sort of cultural respect demand mm-hmm. and the veterans that I know that were not in World War II and like the intense sort of thrown to the windness mm-hmm. of their lives, you know? Sure. Like, it's sort of like, 
you know, you have the same people saying, you have the same people saying, support our troops, respect our troops, and the same people not really caring what happens to our troops afterwards. That's as though they're not people. You know, I think that's pretty tragic. And obviously there are people who are able to reconcile this in some kind of way, but I, I, you know, I think, I mean, you know, I think a lot of the reason that, like, my grandfather was, like, not so pissed about being drafted was that, you know, he could have gone to school if he wanted to mm-hmm. afterwards, you know? He could have done this. He could have done that. You know, he could get a job interview. He became a firefighter. So essentially just went from sort of a public service type of situation to a public service type of situation, you know, with Mm -hmm. ranks and all these things, you know. So it was not difficult for him to adapt to that scenario, you know. But if if you're telling somebody that, hey, you just got done shooting people, so now I need you to make telemarketing calls because that's the only work available. Or, like, greet people at Walmart. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of psychological sure. dissonance, you know? It's like, and I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, okay. You know, I'm not, I'm not clowning on being a greeter at Walmart. Do you know what I mean? Sure. I could clown on Walmart at large. But, but you know what? Some of those old people just want to talk to people. Do you know? Well, and work's work. <laughs> yeah, work I mean- is work. That's true. But so, like, Ryan, what's your experience with this? What service people? Don't, I don't have much to add. I, I think, um, you know, I think making this point about, I would say that if you say that someone is a World War II veteran and someone is a Vietnam veteran, they evoke almost the opposite thing, right? Yeah. Um, in your mind. And so in my case, in my family, both of my grandfathers served in Korea, um, one, and both joined, one joined the, my mother's father was in the Navy. My father's father was in the Marines. Both joined to avoid being drafted into the army with this figuring of like, I'm going to go anyway. I'd rather choose my branch. Right. Um, but I think that, I mean, I think that, yeah, there's a, the profound disconnect you're talking about is really important. The difference between what we say these are our troops and these are our heroes and whatnot uh, versus how they're actually treated and what Mm -hmm. options are available to them. And I think part of it to me comes back to uh, the point I was making about toxic exposure, which is also, I think very true of the, the psychological impacts of fighting in a war Mm -hmm. is that what we don't do, what the Pentagon doesn't do and what policymakers don't do and what we as a society don't do uh, is treat those things as predictable consequences of fighting wars. Right. And mm-hmm. therefore be things that we should be planning for. Well, so so you know? do you feel like this rejection... Now, this just occurred to me right now, but do you feel like this rejection is like some kind of ghost of sort of Cold War communist fear? Or do you think they're just being cheap? No, I think... I mean, I think that it's... Uh, I mean, I would say my my view is that there is uh, a pretty profound uh, like subconscious desire that we have as individuals and as a society to avoid thinking about the consequences of our actions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the story, the story where it's GI Joe 
American hero who's now like owns like whatever, you know, uh, yeah. and went to school on the GI Bill, which, by the way, I mean, it was only in the last year that the law changed on the GI Bill because um, there was a bunch of these like for profit University of Phoenix type scam colleges that were targeting veterans. Right. Mm hmm. To get that GI Bill money, Trump right? University, and that, right. that loophole's only been closed in the last year, and so we ha that idea of it is nice to us. And like they come out, it's Memorial Day, it's Veterans Day. You come out, we we give you a standing ovation during the seventh inning stretch. But then, if you're suffering because of it, physically, psychologically, uh, if you have this cognitive dissonance and this inability to reintegrate into society, you have no help reintegrating into society. I think we'd rather just not think about it, honestly. Yeah. Um, and rather not. And one of the one of the things to me that is profoundly tragic about it is rather not pay for it. Mm -hmm. Or sort of like you, if you have, we we spend three quarters of a trillion dollars a year on the Pentagon, and for the cost of a single F thirty five airplane, we could probably pay for the like for caretaker, for the health care for everybody who's fought in a war in this country. So it's what we prioritize. And, sure. and part of it is we're telling a bullshit story about what our military does and what war is and uh, not really thinking through the consequences of our actions. You have all these people who signed up after 9-11 in an act of, I think, objectively pretty extraordinary patriotism mm -hmm. um, who were sent to fight a badly planned badly considered war with no end game and then got back home to an understaffed under-resourced VA hospital and a GI bill that wasn't protecting them from predatory for-profit colleges. It's, it's, it's a disgrace. And I also think the, uh, the last thing I'll say about it too, is that, you know, when you make this world war two Vietnam comparison, we also had the very atrocious sort of the anti-war um, has had, and I think continues to have, the anti-war movement in this country has had a pretty fucked up relationship with rank-and-file soldiers for a long time. Mm -hmm. you know, all, we all hear these stories about protesters spitting on soldiers when they return from Vietnam and calling them baby killers and whatever. Right. Um, and I think that that's another piece of it. I mean, for me, as a person who is politically very anti-war, not 100% pacifist, but by and large anti-war, uh, I think being, I think a part of being a, part of being anti-war is wanting to take care of the people who went and fought sure. and understanding them as victims of it, you know? Mm. So, I, so, so who's their defender? If you have the like very jingoistic, rah-rah, support our troops, yellow ribbon on my truck, people on one side who also like don't ever want to pay for government services like the VA or the yeah, GI. Yeah, that's what I was driving at, you know. <laughs> and on the other side, you have an anti-war movement with a significant strain of anti-war means being anti-soldier in it. I don't know who the defenders of veterans really are in practice, you know. Yeah. It's well, not it's, Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, so, so a goofy aspect of that also is that just the the generation that had the the biggest stake in the 
the Vietnam era anti-war movement is now by and large, at least seems to me, but I, I live in the South. And so I'm, I'm getting a slightly different day to day view of this. The, the same group of folks who now have, have set up military service as this monolith and this warrior class that we're not supposed to question the troops and this and that, yeah. but then it's, it's combined with, this dissonance where, oh, but I don't want my tax money to go to VA hospitals or to yeah. um, to psychological care for veterans or for homeless veterans. I mean, the the homeless veterans demographic. I mean, talk about shameful, and yes. and it it always seems to, or at least from what I've seen and what I've heard, it comes down to. Not, not with my tax money. I mean, he, people are are willing to pay astronomical healthcare premiums, partly so they can bitch about it, and they've got somebody <laughs> to blame, and then partly so that, well, I don't want my taxes raised, but what if you're saving five thousand dollars per annum? <laughs> Right. By, I mean, just just insane. And so before before I move too far afield from the, the military idea, just it it feels like it feels like there there is a a sizable portion of the population who for whom the military is an abstract thing. Yeah, and even places and near you don't have bases real and people stuff. involved with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I, and I, I feel us, I feel us veering off the military topic a little bit. Can I, can I say one last thing about yeah. it before we go all the way away? I, I want to connect it too to something that we've also talked about on Prisoners. several episodes of the show, which is the way that we think of ourselves and the way we think of our history. I also think that there's. Uh, to me, a pretty clear connection there, and this is the same part of what I was saying before about not wanting to face reality, is that like when we have a version of the story that is we're the good guys and we are the mighty saviors of Europe or whatever, um, then that's that's something that we're we're down for embracing that, right? right? But then with Vietnam veterans or Korea veterans or Afghanistan and Iraq veterans, I think they sort of remind us of our fragility and our failures and that's not their fault but right. we treat them as this to this point that we treat them as this avatar of uh what we think americanness is or how we see ourselves and so um that that there is a connection there it's like a world war ii vet world war ii was the good war we came in we liberated europe uh we defeated the nazis and so those people are just unequivocally, like uncomplicatedly heroes. Vietnam, we'd rather not talk about. Mm -hmm. Afghanistan, we'd rather not talk about. You know? And so what happens to these individual human beings who went through this uh, indescribably traumatic, horrific experience on our behalf, whether you like it or not, um, we, we treat them as symbols of the larger thing. And I think that that's, I think that's deeply sad. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's deeply sad. And especially now that we have a volunteer army, and especially now that, um, I mean, obviously, even when there was a draft, it was still disproportionately poor people who went and so on. But we have an armed forces now that's disproportionately poor, disproportionately sure. rural, disproportionately black, disproportionately Latino. And um, it can be, it can also feel in that sense like a reflection of, um, Way few, way fewer people know somebody who died in Iraq and Afghanistan than people knew somebody who died in Vietnam or World War II. And certain communities know a lot of people, but that makes it invisible to everybody else. Sure. Well, so I, I, I think it's time for us to take to take a little exploration of a slightly more humorous military narrative. Uh, we're going to do. A performance of Ben did of Modern Major General. We'll be right. right back after this. My heart belongs to another, just so you understand. The brand new single from Warren Malone. It's got a beat, and you can dance to it. We can have a good time, a good time. We can have a really good time, a good time. A good time, it's time to say goodbye. All right, and we're back. That was a bit of a refresher, I'd say. <laughs> we got pretty dark there for a minute. Um, so so I'm trying to think. I've got a couple of I've got a, a whole lot of questions swirling around for you. Um, sure. But I can't decide which one. Ryan, do you have any? No, just pick just pick one out. Well, I've just, you know, I didn't really eat, and I've had uh, a couple of these Dale's Pale Ales, right? And uh, It's a good beer. It is. It's a really nice beer. It's a really... Uh, yes, it comes in a can, so you can float down a kayak with a few of them in your lap. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, I learned this trick, you can drag them behind the kayak, and they'll That's cool true. Off. <laughs> they usually don't last long enough for me to set them up to drag, but... Well, you just have to bring enough. That's the that's whole thing. true. That's true. <laughs> that's true. So, so you have not so recently relocated to South Carolina. Yes, yes. I I moved to South Carolina from Georgia when my wife and I got married. So, how do you find South Carolina, especially now? Like, so, what? How did you find the transition? First of all. I'm always interested in this because most people, and I would I would venture to say that most of our listeners see the South as sort of a monolithic cultural thing. Um, how did you find the first initial move, and then that versus has well, that moves into our current era? That's an excellent question. So the the first thing is that life the volume on life got turned way down. And so I, prior to that, had um, had lived in Athens, Georgia, was going to the, the University of Georgia for my master's degree and my doctorate. And there are enough Atlanta transplants in Athens that parts of it still keep that Atlanta area pace of life and of speech and just the the volume of things and the the whole the whole tone of things got 
turned down quite a bit when I was living full time in South Carolina. And I live in a reasonably developed, not not really a metropolitan area, but but a, a small city. And um, and so the a few things jumped out at me immediately. So within within a year, probably within probably six months of living in South Carolina, I was summoned for jury duty, which was a pretty pedestrian, uh, not much pomp and circumstance situation in Georgia. The, the courtrooms I was always in were sort of cinder blocky walls and looked like, um, looked like a high school technology lab without all the cool toys. And, and so going to jury duty in South Carolina, I noticed that South Carolina to some extent has held on to some powdered wig bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Like watching a British drama. Well, it's to some extent, and and so just just little affectations, and so um, so the the first place where that was illustrated to me was when I met met the assistant clerk of court, and she asked me if I was one of the jurors. The what? The jurors, and <laughs> and I and I said the. And I, I said that. I said the the what? And um and she said Are you a Jura today in the the courts of um Court of General Sessions? And I said, I'm a juror <laughs> And she said she said, Fine, fine and she, she held up a tub where where I was or she handed me a post it told me to put my name on the post-it, put the post-it on my cell phone and put my cell phone in the tub because I would be in contempt of court if my phone rang, which I understand is fairly normal. But then the the whole little affectations like Jura kept happening all day long. And um and I was thinking, man, this is this is a really different <laughs> really different area i've moved to but a nice element of that is once uh, once i had been disqualified from jury service for being far too um far too educated i guess because they started asking me questions in the whole voir dire process about my um my opinions on certain things and um and they both sides were uh, were scribbling down a lot of stuff when uh, when they heard about my doctorate and then they they asked me or they asked just sort of general hand raise opinions on certain things and uh, and I was one of the people they got to uh, talk to at further length who felt like uh, marijuana should be decriminalized and and they asked me if I was aware that it is currently illegal. I said, yes, yes, I'm aware it's currently illegal, but I have no idea why it's illegal. <laughs> and um, 
and they they looked at me like I was insane and started to talk about a gateway drug. And I said, the only reason it's a gateway drug is because it's illegal. Once you do one illegal thing, you are more likely to do another legal thing or illegal thing because you've you've broken that particular barrier. So why don't we make it legal, tax the shit out of it and say pump up our schools or maybe tell people to stop calling jurors Juros. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, and so I got sent home, but, uh, <laughs> but when I got sent home, they gave me my like $18 check and notified me that, uh, that I was, um, I had completed my jury service for a period of three years. So I had a three year moratorium, on being called for a jury and which was definitely not a thing I recall in Georgia. I got no. called many, many times. And, and so along, along with that, uh, there just different socioeconomic status. Um, the traffic's different. Um, in in sort of an infuriating way, the uh, the left lane is not a passing lane. It's it's where you it's where you cruise, kind of maybe either four miles below the speed limit or thirty seven miles above, one or the other, one or the other, <laughs> and you you pass haphazardly on the right, and then if you have to make a right turn, you come to a full and complete stop before you turn, almost causing an accident with either the maniac behind you who is trying to speed around the person going 37 miles above the speed limit or the person who learned actually how to drive where you stay in the right lane until you need to pass. And so, uh, so I ended up in almost or in a few near misses because of uh, that. And whenever somebody moves to South Carolina, they start to they start to gripe about the way people drive in this in this corner of South Carolina. And I said, "Yeah, just keep an eye out on that right lane. It's very dangerous." <laughs> now, now, so South Carolina has kind of been um, known to sort of most of the american media as like kind of a a very very conservative place oh we're well represented with the with the demonstrably right um so it's been it's been especially apparent in the last few years because it it seems like um uh, Kissing, kissing the the Donald Trump ring is something that every serious South Carolinian needs to do on whatever national scale they can. And so my my early years in South Carolina was around the um, around the massacre at the Mother Emanuel Church, and then the national mm-hmm. embarrassment that was the the debate that led up to actually removing the Confederate flag from the, the Capitol, um, grounds. Right. 
but the the representative the representative who ended up on every news outlet um lee bright was my district's local representative and um and so yeah how proud was i (laughs) (laughs) and so um so in where i live there there is a um There's a well-educated and vocal left of center and left wing population. Very, very small, small but mighty. But for the most part, you've got folks who are to the right of center, and uh, depending on depending on what media they have consumed recently, can be dra- dragged much further to the right. Mm-hmm. And, and so there, there are a lot of people who are by and large very reasonable but then you have a few folks that are just their their platters have spun off and so that that can be a little tricky to navigate and um and so at least in in discussions that that get towards policy and uh, one one that i'll typically be very um loud or outspoken locally is education it can be tough to break break through the talking points because they they are the talking points for various national issues are very well entrenched in this uh in this area Hmm. so i'm 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 interested in this like because i've you know i don't have kids i'm not an educator but i am i am interested what what and you are an educator Sure. And, uh, you know, last last week we he, he was our, our guest, Nathan, was a bit um, reserved in his criticism of the county that he worked for. Sure. Mostly to do with its covid policy and it's sort of back and forth about that. But uh, what what are the so. I don't really understand, and you probably do, and Ryan, you probably do. I don't really understand what was happening with education in the last four years. Well, so at least at least most recently, like um, to to speak to my district and the surrounding districts, they are doing the absolute best they can in in some pretty rotten circumstances and so um so at the the end of last semester so i i got back into um into active classroom teaching towards the end of last year so like beginning of november and um and so the the classes were still um, were still a hybrid model. So you had uh, you had the school population uh, split by their last name. I want to say uh, A through K, L through Z, something like that. And and so you'd have A B A B, and then all in on Fridays. Okay. And so starting starting this January, so starting this semester, we've been 
all in five days face-to-face um face-to-face instruction now the um the districts as far as um the the administrators i work with have been very supportive in making sure there are uh plexiglass dividers and that uh, that those who who are infected or have first degree contacts are then quarantined for a 14 day period and there's really no no exception to that rule they they do fairly um fairly extensive contact tracing they're they've been extremely transparent with me about what the situation is, what might change. And so to some extent the the decisions are are happening at the uh, at the top of the the state government. And so when you get down to the districts, they they have okay, here's what the situation is and we will we will deal with it as best as possible and and so i i don't feel anxious about working or anything like that it's tough because i teach theater and so because a good portion of uh, students are still um have still opted to to be virtual students and then um because of various issues related to um to COVID and, uh, and the education in general. Um, we have students who missed so many days last semester for one reason or another, they, they have to recover those hours or they have to retake certain, um, certain sections of classes or prepare for summer schools so that they can actually promote in their grade. It, the, the situation is tough. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, I really can can only only commend the the people that I work with and for for just taking a situation that's always changing and that uh, I mean, listen to a bit of a uh, bit of Nathan's show and he talked about the the revolving door and it, it really is like that there's there's one of my classes where where I don't know from day to day what I might see. And so that's really tricky. And then a couple of my, a couple of my classes have, uh, have shrunk down to three or four kids, which for, for an acting class is brutal right. because you'd like to have a slightly larger group so you can mix things up. You can have larger or, or at least so, so class activities will take long enough to fulfill that that 51 minutes of a class period. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's difficult. It really is. Uh I missed I missed out on the um the the March through early June of 2000 craziness as as an educator because I was still working retail then. Uh, but I, I saw it with my wife every day. She's, she teaches high school too. And, um, and just the, 
And I'm sure there were plenty of educators who didn't put in as many hours as she did, but it it felt like most weeks she was she was putting in 60, 70, 80 hours just to keep or just to feel like she was providing the the standard of education that she'd want to provide during a a five day all in. So would you school ven- year situation? Would you venture to say that? I mean, from from everything we've heard from those of you who are in the middle of this, it seems to me that that um, educators may very well be the most conscientious government employees that exist. God, I hope. <laughs> God, I hope so. God, I hope so. Because um, the so. So many, so many public servants of one type or another. I mean, um, harkening back to a little bit of what we were talking about um, with regards to to um, those who've served in the military. There's there's a a monolith to it, and so suddenly the the same the same people who were the heroes in March come about May were being called lazy and um and overly overly scared of the of the virus and all of that and so the the political side of that is really um really hurtful and um and so the people who work in public health teachers um fire law enforcement the the folks who are directly involved with the the public's everyday life either in their in their safety and well-being or in the uh, the well-being related to to education which in my opinion comes back to influence every other thing it's it's tough to it's tough to read or hear some of the public rhetoric around that but right. um but at the at the end of the day i mean we we're we are all about providing the the best environment possible for the students mm-hmm. and um and that, I mean, with with some of some of my students, once they're they're out of the, the school building, the the stories can get pretty grim. And so, there's a part of me that, even though, sure, sure, a a virtual type situation would feel safer, I feel like for for a non-zero portion of my kids, my classroom is the best place on earth for them to be because mm. I, I am not going to be screwing around with the, the, um, the mask protocols and the hand sanitizing. They will do that in my class. They will keep the appropriate distance. And, um, and so I feel like at least for that, for that hour a day, they're they're somewhere safe with with somebody who 
generally or uh, genuinely has their their well-being at at heart and uh, and plus i i get to teach one of the really fun subjects and so from time to time we we have a really great time and then sometimes it's it's pulling teeth but i mean that's that's school that's that's how it right, goes right right so so one of the things i'm i'm pretty interested in as uh, all of us here on this program have been involved were involved as kids in high school theater mm-hmm. and i imagine that one thing that hasn't changed is the whole tmi about your life thing theater sure. kids go on with i i think i think of all our guests you may have one of the closer uh, abilities to answer the question of what what is this like for a high school kid do you know like what is this it's got to be crazy right oh yeah well the so there there are two there are two sides or at least two really difficult sides to it you've got the the incoming freshmen who at least as far as high school are cons- high school is concerned have experienced nothing else of high school okay and so some some of these kids are just cratering and and it's very hard to to get them excited or to get them to actually do what they're supposed to be doing and complete assignments that, or even participate those things like that but then with the the juniors and seniors who who are getting into what should be the the most active and in some cases exciting years of their their high school career with senior trips and um and as special special educational opportunities that they're just not getting to do. I mean, think think of think of the things we we got to be involved with True. in in high school and and the. I mean, I mean, you remember we we were at that school until all hours from time to time and then would get into all sorts of other shenanigans but um like building a bunker for y2k oh, sure. yes indeed yes indeed <laughs> making sure all of all of our toasters would flip over to the double zero lest they leach out our entire bank accounts yeah so but i but still yeah, don't trust toasters <laughs> well you know <laughs> you know that's fair well that's 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 why we have uh, that's why we have air fryers now. Yeah, I got the, I just air fryer. I just is, got is one the of those. Slave. I just got one of those, and I'm I'm supposed to be bequeathing my toaster oven to Ryan. But ah. oh, I, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, you know, it's I do the toaster, toaster, toaster oven. It's all it's, oven. Oven. Oh yeah, it's all boxed up. It's ready to go. <laughs> I mean, you can trust it because you can see in there, you know? Yeah. Well, that's the whole thing. Like, there is a certain level of deception that the regular toaster has. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, mean, just, I mean, what happens I'm calling to all for the transparency. <laughs> True. But then, I mean, the, the transparent toasters, unfortunately, you just can't get them at the Hot Topic anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to get them from the prop master of the Heathers. 
That's true. That's true. And um, and that guy ain't releasing shit. No, <laughs> that's definitely true. Well, I think I think it might be time for another musical break. Uh, this right. is this is uh, Pasquinade. This is Smile and Wave by Lindsay Dragon. She hopes to play this sick solo for you in person one day. So what the fuck do you think, Laura? I don't know. I mean, first of all, I think the theme could be better. I don't. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, you know, as long as you're willing to settle for mediocrity, then I guess that's fine. I'm always willing to do that. You know what? Wow. And I actually think in this day and age, that's probably acceptable. Um, how the hell are you? Not bad. Not bad. Fantastic. Um, hey, Ryan. Hey, Ben. Hello. Ben, this is Lara. Hi, Ben. Hi, Lara. What the fuck do you think? Fucking thought, I have some fucking thoughts, <laughs> and I need to get some fucking shit off my chest. And please, you know, all right. And and so I have to say it in this specific order. Just you guys can decide which one you most want to talk about. Um, I have some very specific thoughts about the issues facing our returning military. And I have some really personal experience with all of this. And what I kept waiting for all of you to mention, and what I'm always shocked about, is that you have three guys sitting around talking about what could possibly be, how what could be the problem? Why is this a problem? How could this, why are we doing this? And you don't mention the one thing that is so clearly, at least not, the entire root, but a huge root of this, which is, and I know it's a buzz phrase, but the toxic masculinity that surrounds the culture that makes it impossible to talk about things like why men aren't allowed to cry, why you're not allowed to deal with mental health issues, why you're not allowed to deal with anything emotional that happens because you are supposed to suck it the fuck up. And if you don't, and if you ask for help, you are weak. And this idea that we can support our troops as long as, you know, they don't indicate any sign of weakness. And it's so prevalent throughout so much of the culture that surrounds the military in general, but then also the returning military. Just this idea that you're supposed to suck it up and that even asking for help is a sign of weakness, let alone getting it. And, and that in and of itself is a real problem. And so I'm surprised when you get three men who I am assuming have had to deal with this in, in your lives who don't see that as one of the big problems. We just sucked it up, Lara. Yeah, but did you? No. Yeah, none of, none of us <laughs> no. cry. I'm Not really. <laughs> Not really. I mean, uh, yeah, that's I've a fair point. All, I mean, Ben, I don't, that's I don't know you, but I have definitely seen the two of you cry, Eric and Ryan. I don't think you that's seen, right. No, I don't think that's right. 
Oh, is it just my dreams? Where Maybe. do you cry? Maybe. <laughs> I probably, yeah, yeah, I mean, I cry a lot, but I do it in private. Okay. I, mean, I, I, I think you're right, Lara. I think what, what I was, what I was focusing on, I mean, I, for me, it can, I think you're absolutely right, obviously, about the, the cultural norms of like military culture. That's for sure true. I also think if someone does ask for help, they often can't get it. And I wonder how, you know. Well, right. And I think that that part of the problem is that, I mean, one of the things you were saying, I think, is true, that there's a lot of predatory institutions that have been developed to take advantage of our returning soldiers because there is no help available. There is no system of help. And some of the predatory institutions are about taking care of them, quote unquote, financially. There's a lot of like payday loan companies and banking institutions that purport to help them that are really just there to take from them. And then there's places like, you know, scam universities. But then also, and this speaks more to some of my experience, although, and this is honestly true, I am not sure how comfortable I am talking about too much of my personal experience with this, because I think some of this information may not be um, good for public consumption. Um, And I wouldn't want some of the things I know to get out too publicly. But there are also a lot of companies that take advantage of returning military and, you know, put them back into that world, but on a civilian level, which is how you like Blackwater. Yes. And, And a lot of that is very much about saying, so you can't make it here in the world and you know what we can offer you a military lifestyle without the actual military larry do you think that that's also that 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 sort of message of you can't make it doing anything this is the only thing you're good at is also part of the explanation for why we've seen so many uh ex-military and the proud boys and the oath keepers and so on well i think it's a combination of all of these things because again you have to remember that This idea of, and I recognize I keep coming back to toxic masculinity, but the ways in which this idea of what masculinity is supposed to represent and the ways in which it becomes toxic is this idea that fighting is somehow strong and that strength is important and that instead of talking things out, that you should be, you know, throwing punches and so yeah i think that a lot of the proud boy stuff a lot of that is very much about you know you need a fight and you've been itching for a fight your whole life and if you weren't itching for a fight and you just wanted a college education and you believe the military would help you get there we sure as hell trained you to fight and now we're not gonna deprogram you and, you know, you're on your own, so good luck with that. And, oh, I'm sorry, are you crying? Fuck you. And so I think that it's this combination and this idea that even talking about mental health is you're, you can't. And, and a lot of soldiers in every branch of the military are punished for seeking mental health when they are in the Army. Well- and they're not always punished... Um, like abjectly, 
but a lot of times it'll be things like, well, we don't think that you should really be put up for a promotion if, you know, you can't handle it. Yeah. Things like that. And there's a lot of that, which means that a lot of soldiers who stay in the army, do, or the military in general, don't get the help they need because they've not, they get to go see a chaplain. That's right. available. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a wide variety of, we are training you to fight and yes, often kill people. And we are not giving you any kind of emotional help to deal with that because that's for ladies. So, question. How do you feel about how this is reflected in the four Rambo movies? Oh, well, I mean, obviously, Rambo is totally different because, you know, he's, you know, a badass. And, you know, not everybody can be Rambo. Well, no, but... And there are five of those movies. Is there five? No, we don't talk about the other one. (laughs) Well, okay, so... so Not canon. Is it not canon? No, I'm just joking. I don't know. There's five? (laughs) I only know four. Yeah, there's the last one that just came out. Yes. There's okay. There's the there's the like good one, right? The first one. Well, there's there's the one that actually has a, a social social message that yep. um, that has to Lara's point. Rambo basically in a puddle crying about how he's he was in charge of million dollar equipment and can't get a job washing cars and uh, that that there's no place for him anymore. But uh, the the remainders have um, basically been brought into the uh, the canon of uh, the hyper masculine badass uh, kill the bad guys movie. And the thing is that this comes out in other ways too. I mean, it's also it it feeds into that whole idea of don't ask, don't tell. It feeds into this idea of whether or not women should be allowed to serve and whether women should be allowed to fight and whether like all of this kind of thing, it all kind of comes from the same place. And there's this real protective shell around the idea that you have to protect the masculinity of this, because if that starts to crack, a lot of things are going to come to the surface that there is no infrastructure that exists to deal with. And so it's just don't talk about it. Don't say anything. And, you know, if you're sad, then just, you know, don't don't show us like suck it up. And I think that that's one of the I mean, it goes with everything. It's one of the reasons that like. We can't talk about the Vietnam War because you can only talk about the ways in which you win. You can't talk about yeah. the ways in which things went badly. Yeah. You can't talk. I mean, and it just keeps going back to this idea that to admit that you were wrong or that you were hurt or that you're struggling or any of that, like, you're not supposed to do that. And I don't want to say that everything in the world comes back to toxic masculinity Everything in the world comes back to toxic masculinity. If 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 I was running the world, everything would come back to toxic Avenger. I'd say. I mean, and cavemen. No, not necessarily cavemen. We're not going to talk about that here, Lara. Sorry. We do have comments uh, from our number one commenter at this moment, Marshall Rosales. 
Um, we I, filmed. We really, we, we, Stephen Campazola has abandoned us. He has. Our, 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 he, are we the ones who have been deplatformed? I maybe so, maybe so. But it, film nerd here, Marshall says, there are technically four Rambo films, but there are now five films with with the John Rambo character. First Blood, Rambo: First Blood Part Two, Rambo Three, Rambo, and Rambo: Last Blood. The titles make no goddamn sense. So is it the, is First Blood not canon Rambo? Is that the one that's not? Does it need to have Rambo in the title? I'm unsure. I'm unsure. Well, Rambo was added to the title of that one later, but um, I mean. Mm. Yeah, so we have, okay, now we have the potential for a film buff battle here between our our, our number one commenter. Ben, you are a, a huge film buff, as I understand. That's true. Um, okay, great battle. I'm glad we did that. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, you guys, you guys are, you guys are very very nice to one another i i would like to say i would like to get into the weeds a little bit about this like in terms of since we've already been on this whole thing since the dead beat sort of vaguely or explicitly associated with the military like what happens what are some of the all of you what are some of the coolest things you've seen in war narratives and post-war narratives and some of the absolutely stupidest things if I may say, because of some of my life experiences dealing like so personally with the military, mm-hmm. um, I tend to avoid all war narratives because so many mm. of them are so like I I hesitate to allow myself to have PTSD because of the things that I went through because of that. But I find it like hard to casually talk about. Mm. which and like and not it's not fun for me like to have that issue but like i can't even watch like i like i i don't watch movies that are about war and i don't watch i don't i can't it's just too upsetting because i know how much how awful it is Does that, that case, i know it's not fun that's not a fun way to put it um, in that case, let's move on there. You, you said at the top, you said you had a handful of things. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. And I, I believe you were going to give us a menu of options, but um, that's yeah. not what happened. No, well, because I just got into the talking about that. But, okay, so yeah. there's other things. Um, the second thing is the, uh, you're talking a lot about South Carolina and talking about the South in general. And one of the things that I wanted to throw out there is that um, the South is not red. The South is not conservative. The South is repressed. And I think that we can see a lot of that through, for instance, what happens when you empower voters and you allow people who actually live in. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't, you know, conservatives in the South, but there are conservatives in New York City. Um, But I think that the narrative that the South is, you know, Trump country. Like, well, I mean, to be fair, Trump grew up like five blocks from where I grew up in Queens. So I just want to make sure that I put that out there, that the South is actually probably a lot bluer than people think. But there's been so much voter suppression that people don't really 
give the South that credit. And there's so many, I mean, gosh, Eric, look at you. You're look from the me. South. Sort of. And, and you're not, you know, a Trumper. How do you know? Because <laughs> you agreed to deplatform him. I mean, I'm just trying to throw the grenade into everybody. See which way the political winds are blowing. Yeah, you know, I'm a fair weather fan. Yeah, I, I would say. I mean, to to this point, I, a thing that has fascinated me about the 120 something arrests of the Capitol barbarians to this point. Yeah. Uh, is so so far the as of today, Texas and New York are tied for most barbarians. Okay. Yeah. Uh, among the states that don't have any are states you for sure would have thought would have had some, including Montana, the Dakotas, and Mississippi. Mississippi has not had a single person arrested. Now, can I ask a question? And this is um, this is an honest question. It costs an enormous amount of money to do the kind of, you know, military cosplay, and to some extent, they're actual military, but. Let's imagine that you are doing that kind of, you know, you have to take time off from work. You have to buy yourself all of that shit. You have to actually travel there, which is not, you know, cheap. Um, During a pandemic, no less. During a pandemic. There's a lot going on there. Mississippi is not known as one of the wealthier states. I think you're on to something, yeah. I mean... Thinking about places like New York and Texas, it's like, yeah, no, there's money. I mean, remembering that in order to do stuff like this, like they keep that narrative that has been pushed by, you know, absolute garbage drivel like hillbilly elegy, which can, you know, suck my dick. Um, (laughs) And I mean that kindly because I think it's very nice to suck somebody's dick. So I don't mean it in a bad way. Um, I should come up with a better, it, it, you know, that, that, that douchebag of a story um, gives the impression that all of this has to do with economic insecurity. And, you know, a lot of the people that were responsible for that are, you know, not economically insecure. They're just racists. Well, that, that, that narrative was always bullshit on its face. Right. And I think it's the, I mean, if you see, um, uh, throughout history, like the, uh, there was somebody, uh, I think maybe somebody in the, in the DOJ who was anonymously quoted as saying, "Like, we can't believe who these people are. They're like business owners and doctors." And we're like, "But that's who." I mean, do you yes. know your history? Like, look at the photos from lynchings. Yeah, that's who it is. It's extremely well dressed. It's like the hoi polloi of the town. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's that's what we saw a couple of weeks ago. I mean, an attempted yeah. lynching. A really well-funded, well-prepared attempted lynching, um, and uh, of Mike Pence, no less. Well, and <laughs> and of of any uh, of any female lawmaker they could find that they recognized yeah. from the yeah. television. I mean, Ben, I prefer yeah. woman. Not I mean, we lost you there, Lara. Oh, I prefer the word woman, not oh, women. Sure. Pardon me? I just yeah, that's right. And there's and there's more details there's there's more details emerging about specific threats um to particular women lawmakers, um, in addition to Pence obviously and, and so on. So 
Yeah, I think it's right. But I think, yeah, nobody who knows their history has any right to be shocked that it's middle class and, and upper middle class people who are and the bulk. Especially not, not just the South. And I think that this yeah. continuing smug narrative that often comes from people who haven't spent a lot of time in the South is that the South is somehow, you know, just full of hicks and hillbillies and et cetera, et cetera. But if you've ever spent any time in the South, and I spent a fair amount of time in Dothan, Alabama, and the thing is that it's it's not what, I mean, it's just you, you, you people don't understand that it is remarkably blue, remarkably progressive, and that's where a lot of the fight in this country comes from and to ignore the fact that there's a bunch of people there still fighting really hard and who are being ignored because people are you know writing off the south as being trump country and i feel like it's not it's just that they're repressed and they've been you know disenfranchised and they have there's the gerrymandering and all of that but i think that if more people were able to vote and there was more attention being paid to it, I think the South would be a lot bluer. So I just wanted to bring that up because you'd been talking about, I'm not saying that I know more about South Carolina than you do. I don't mean it like that. Um, all I mean is that I wanted to give props to all of the activists I know in South Carolina who are fighting really hard. Well, sure. And uh, to to speak to that a little bit, the... Um, and I'm sure if we, if we dug in a little bit, we might know some of the same people but um one of the tough one of the tough aspects of being a democrat in south carolina and in georgia too to a lesser but real extent is the it feels pervasive because of the tendency to get shouted down just instantly in in public i mean the uh it's um it's very difficult to have especially in the last six seven years or so to to have substantive discussion in say city hall when uh when their public comment and i'm not i'm not saying you're wrong i think you're absolutely right particularly about the uh voting rights and the go ahead may i introduce you to what it's like to be a woman in the world sure <laughs> no that's the extent sure. of that, that was no <laughs> that's the entire comment yeah, <laughs> yeah please no, continue i understand, <laughs> I, understand. <laughs> I i took that as rhetorical and decided to answer i do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i am um, you know, I, I think I've talked about this in previous episodes. I um, In my old job, one of the things I did was take uh, – I, I lived and worked in Honduras for a human rights organization. And I I took um, one of our uh, – a representative from one of our partner organizations on a tour, a speaking tour of colleges. And, and my uh, – the way it worked out the year that I did it was that the tour was in the southeast. So we were at three different places in South Carolina as part of that tour. And and I and I really did see the exactly what I think, and you talked about it before too, but that this like small and mighty progressive movement. Um, obviously, ob- needless to say, that's who was hosting us. And uh, like I met a guy. We were at um, Coker College in yep, Hartsville. I South know Carolina. exactly where that is. 
um, Coker College in Hartsville, South Carolina. And the man who, the professor there who hosted us was this guy who was like running this really quixotic, like doomed to fail congressional campaign as a Bernie Sanders, like socialist in Hartsville, South Carolina, um, who in our entire, he, he drove us in his little pickup from Coker College to our next stop. And the whole time was just talking about the need to free Palestine. I was like, every, whatever, whatever image, whatever stereotype I had about South Carolina uh, was definitely erased in that truck ride. <laughs> um, like this guy who was just like, yeah, I'm running for Congress as a Bernie Sanders socialist, and I think I can win because my policies are actually better for the people of Hartsville. I was like, yeah, I think that too. I don't know that the people of Hartsville are going to think that, but <laughs> good on him. And- I mean, he got crushed. Crushed. I followed up, but um, and as but somebody still, who's in Hartsville a lot, I, my my wife's from there, and so basically mm. almost every major holiday I am there. Um, I wish, wish, <laughs> wish, wish he would have won because you're absolutely yeah. right that there there is a a small pocket of very well to do folks in Hartsville, South Carolina, and then there's a big chunk that really could use that kind of change that i mean the the opportunities would be unbelievable and so i i just think it's it's fun to to hear hartsville and coker college in this kind of uh, (laughs) conversation because i am i wouldn't say i am intimately familiar with with hartsville south carolina but i do some of my time there is uh, is among the uh, is among the most um, best way to describe this targeted as far as uh, oh yeah. Ben's uh, Ben's a screaming liberal and um, <laughs> like, no I'm not really a screaming anything but. Um, but yeah, that that tends to happen around the the Hartsville environs, and uh, it's just a fun yeah. little. Huh. So that was my experience. I, I was also uh, just for the, for posterity. I was also in Columbia and in. Um, is there a place called Rock Hill? Is that like yep, right on the border? Sure is. It's yeah. yeah near, at, at it's Winthrop. almost North Carolina, South Carolina. It's like a, it's, a, it's a, practically a Charlotte suburb, I think. But it was it was one hundred percent true. It, we were at we were at Winthrop as well, so that yeah. that's the totality of my my South Carolina experience. And I and I really like I said, as you tapped into these communities and you're meeting these people, people were hosting us who were just these like, like deeply optimistic people, real activists, like unbelievably impressive. Um, and then you know, and then they drive you to your next stop, and in order to get there, you took the Jefferson Davis Highway. So. Yep. Yeah, and, and you know, I don't know. I don't know the. I don't know the solution to to my my feeling about all of that because I I attend um, I attend dinners and and not really rallies. It's more like a, like a barbecue, really, and um, and give and call and text and do do all of the things, but um, it's. It's so tough, particularly now that um, that to some extent I am told keep keep your political viewpoints to yourself. You should be neutral as a a high school teacher, which I I really 
don't agree with. I fortunately was able to have a very frank discussion about January 6th with some of my students while it was happening. And um, probably one of the the few really outside of the fun and games side of drama discussions I've gotten to have this year. And it meant a lot to me, but yeah, it's, it's tough. And, um, and I don't know that, um, I go ahead. Ben, um, what you're saying actually leads into the third and final topic I wanted to raise. I mean, in terms of what the fuck does Lara think it's both a, a, a question and something I'd like to sort of open up. I, in addition to being a journalist and a musician and all that, I'm also a teacher. And today, um, and a bon vivant, and a bon vivant. Yes, of course. But I mean, that goes without saying, right? I don't know what that means. You know what? Look it up. <laughs> There's a Billy Joel song about it. Fair. Look at the, is it Uptown Girls? Is that nope. when? You, it's called piano I've, man. I've loved these days no no i i know piano I was, man it's piano I was, man i was just making River of dreams. Okay. oh have have just as a side note back, about back, piano back. man have you heard the interpretation of piano man that it's about a straight man who walks into a gay bar and doesn't know what's going on no but that's awesome that would you be that would be a way better song and and just start to listen to it and it's like yeah i bet bill in the bar is a friend of yours he gives you your drinks for free. Uh-huh. I just I just want you to start looking at every person that you're meeting there and realize that you do not belong here. But anyway, <laughs> let's go back to um, what I was going to say. So um, one of the things I teach is grammar. And I teach um, adult learners. And today I taught a three-hour, um, the first of four three-hour grammar classes over four consecutive Saturdays that I'm scheduled to teach. And one of my students asked me at the end of class, you know, why is it that so many adults come to take these grammar classes? Like, why did it not stick? Why was it so hard? Why is grammar so difficult for so many students? And I gave her my honest answer, which is that I think a lot of people, you know, suck at teaching. And that's just like, I mean, I think a lot of people are fantastic at teaching, but I think a lot of the students who have come to me have come to me from a history of being told to memorize a bunch of rules that were never put in context and also made to feel stupid when they got something wrong and not taught to look things up or say, I don't know. And so now they're adults and they feel like, I'm afraid to ask questions about grammar. How come I don't know this? I should know this. And so then they come sheepishly into my class. And then, of course, a lot of people are also, you know, they grow up speaking a different English than they're expected to write. So I always tell people that, you know, we teach American Standard English, but there's a whole bunch of different grammatically correct versions of spoken English that I'm not teaching because we're teaching written American Standard English. But you know, there's a bunch of different grammar rules that apply to different kinds of English. But so my question is, based on all of that, how do you feel about 
students being asked to memorize things in school. And is that still a valid way to teach? No, <laughs> I, I really don't. Uh, the So I feel like rote learning is is about as low on the um, on the brain function totem pole as it gets. And so the I feel like any any way the the synthesis process can be engaged at all. Um, just the whole room just lights up in, um, in falls, I get to teach a, a playwriting course, which is just, just a joy. That's great. And, and, um, and so I, I feel like having people memorize rules, it's, it's not, it's not conducive to actually being literate or having the real knowledge of a thing and uh, one of the things that that drives me crazy is there to a certain extent I have to pay lip service to certain learning objectives and part of that is um, I've got to give some kind of assessment that students in my district, I mean, there's no, there's no way there's, they're going to know this stuff. They might, they might pick it up a little bit, particularly if they're in plays or any sort of local community theater or, or if their parents are involved, but then I'm supposed to, at some point later on, give that same test again. And that's supposed to be some kind of barometer of how much they learned that semester. Are you kidding me? Oh, I hate that so much. Are you kidding me? And one of my students was asking me specifically today, like how can she improve her vocabulary besides using flashcards? And I said, first of all, throw your flashcards in the garbage. I just, I just going to tell you right now. She's like, what? And I was like, flashcards don't give you context and they don't give you nuance and also they're horrible i mean Mm -hmm. you keep them if you want to you can make a mural out of them i think they might be fun to decorate with but like read but also like go watch some movies go watch a movie that's ridiculous or do crossword puzzles like i will send you 20 bucks if you want to you know get the new york times crossword puzzle app it's Mm -hmm. for a year 20 bucks for the year and um, there's no such thing as cheating because it's you and the crossword puzzle. So if you don't know the answer and you ask for help, then it fills it in and then you know a new thing. So like, mm-hmm. like learn to say things like, I don't know. Because I mean, I am, as um, Eric once explained to me, and it was a life-changing thing for me, mildly dyslexic. And I'm also a terrible speller. They may be connected but i was told when i was i don't know eight or nine that if i didn't memorize the spelling of every single word in the english language that i would be a failure as a you know human and it wasn't like i would have a dictionary in my pocket everywhere i went but then we went ahead and invented the internet so like my generation told her to go fuck herself (laughs) fuck you i do have the uh the dictionary in my pocket but I just I just needed to know that there's educators out there who are explaining that like yeah you don't have to memorize anything. Memorizing is awful. It's awful. 
the the only thing the only thing I am concerned about students memorizing is their lines. If if for only the reason that that then once once the the skeleton of what the playwright wrote is in your head, then you can dig within yourself and make it real sure. from your own set of emotions. And and then I, once somebody gets really good, yeah, try to memorize word for word because it was what say Tennessee Williams wrote, but still well, other no, than that, no. It's really interesting because I think about this, like memorizing lines, but I also know that from a lot of really huge, massive shows that um, like if you're, I remember being at the Songwriters Hall of Fame ceremony and Kenny Rogers was there and he was asked to sing The Gambler. And you must assume that Kenny Rogers knows the words to The Gambler because I feel I know the words to The Gambler. And there's no way that I have sung The Gambler more than Kenny Rogers. So you would think that he would have memorized it. But, but just yes. in case, um, they had in the very back of the theater a running scroll of mm -hmm. all the lyrics. Because the thing is that even if you can memorize everything, I know that there are some people, for instance, I'm one of them, who forgets the words to her own songs because of the combination of stage fright and panic and sure. all of those things. And so I've seen in, for instance, uh, the Met, the Metropolitan Opera here in New York City, um, they have a running scroll for mm -hmm. the singers yes. on the stage. Oh, yeah. So that if you forget... You can just look down into the orchestra. And it's like, I get that people should memorize some stuff because it can be help internalize stuff. But I feel like not enough people are told that if you do forget something, there, there's going to be help. Well, and here's here's the thing to go along with that. I mean, you're absolutely right. But like, I feel like even the most professional songwriters and actors, they, they do get help. They're not sure. required memorize this sure and um and it doesn't surprise me at all to to hear the the kenny rogers story because every every singer or or actor of renown that i have met has has expressed in a very similar concern that that they they know the shape of things, and and for me personally, the um, the scariest thing I do is the the song I shared with this program because one misplaced syllable, the all the whole thing unspools. Oh yeah, yeah. And you just just is I am done, and so the the help the help absolutely is there, and the the technology has helped. To a great extent, the uh, the main places where where it's tougher is in smaller rural theaters that, in some cases, are putting on things. Just uh, the level level of talent, unbelievable. But I would love to have a, a running prompt for my kids. This is another thing that I've discovered is that. There is a whole new skill set involved 
in being able to check a running prompt as mm-hmm. if you're not checking a running prompt and to be able to fumble and recover sure. like even just singing along to a running prompt is its own skill set sure. which if there was more acknowledgement that this is a thing would be a skill set that would be taught more instead of something like just say okay here's one way to do it and you may get this and here's another way to do it and you may get this and i mean especially now sometimes the running prompt can be as simple as here's an ipad Mm -hmm. it's not technology has become i'm not saying that there aren't places that that where the cost is impossible but I also think just reminding people that even then, you could, like, there's a skill in just learning how to read a prompt without seeming like you're reading lines. Sure. I just wanted to ask that, because I know a special yeah. theater teacher, memorization must be a big thing. It is. And so part of part of my doctoral study, one of the... Um, Part of it was a, a psychology class, and there were um, there were a wide field of things that the the students were concerned with. Most were dealing with um, music therapy concepts, um, audio or um, audio anxiolytics, audio analgesics, those kinds of things. And my concern was. Um, melody and text memorization and i that well i got to do i won't say i had to do i i was fortunate enough to get to spend some time working on various um various techniques with high school and middle school children and what i found at least from a he just wrote idea that worked strangely well was a a reverse chunking and encoding style where people would memorize from the end to the beginning oh. and and so the the idea there is that if you are most familiar with the end of a phrase your mind is reaching for the dif- the difficult passage first and then is moving towards comfort and then as you as you build onto that you're continually reinforcing the destination of well, an I, individual I piece and it works so well with my idea of what a to-do list is sure like every day I have a to-do list and I always do the thing I least want to do first so that as I work through my awful day, I know that I am, what was it you said? Like moving towards comfort? Yes. Yes. Wow. That's so great. And so it, uh, it almost derailed the performance side of my, um, my graduate career because they wanted me to switch to, PhD and chase this to the till the ends of time but um the the whole the whole idea of these these visual 
aids for me and and perhaps perhaps even uh even physical aids for it for me personally i i have a difficulty with with memorizing anything that doesn't have concept or movement attached to it in my mind like you just won't happen and um so i'm really I'm really interested. I think I'm going to start writing some grants and see if I can't get the uh, the prompt at the front of the stage for my students when we are able to perform again live. I would love to do that. That's an I awesome love, idea. And, you know, one of the things, too, that I will say is when I was teaching high school math in Kansas City, Missouri, which is a whole other story. And, by the way, I was in Kansas City because the person – with whom I have the deepest connection to the military was studying at Leavenworth, Go which is how I have all of this. Um, and by the way, as a side note, do you know that at CGSC, which is Command and General Staff College at Leavenworth, um, one of the required courses is chess. They make every military general learn chess. I believe it. Four years of chess. But so I spent a lot of time at Leavenworth, and that's why I was living in Kansas City. But so there I was in Kansas City teaching, and it was a deeply underfunded school. They didn't have calculators in the math department, nor did they have textbooks for the kids. They had enough textbooks for one class, but not enough for people to take home. So we just did like a band fundraiser. Like I just had a bunch of friends who were musicians, and I was like, how much money do we need? Like we could get a grant. But, like, are we talking about $2,000? We could put on a show and buy, like, seven iPads or whatever. I mean, this was before iPads existed. But uh, if that was a thing you wanted to do, I am almost certain that we could find the money for you if it was something that was, say, under $5,000. Sure. We could even make a feel-good movie about it. <laughs> I mean, all I'm saying is that, like, that kind of a GoFundMe Thing, or even you know this there's a uh, teacher things like donors choose i'm i'm just saying there's so many <laughs> yeah i'm just saying like i think that that would be a fantastic sure. use of money and uh if that is ever something you want to do fundraising is a thing that i love to do so uh you what know is- get in touch with me and let me see if i can help with that if um i mean obviously you know go to the big fancy rich people first with their grants sure well and, and some of that yes I think I think they're waiting. Some of the some of the rich folks up here are waiting to spend their money on stuff like that. And so the the argument that you started this particular section of the segment with is probably all I need to shake the green loose. But I will definitely reach out to get to the finish line if need be. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited about this. See, look, it's not just about what the fuck does Lara think. It's also what the fuck is Lara willing to do? Yeah, what the fuck can Lara offer our guest in her <laughs> professional career? Well, because did y'all see that stupid thing? I know that, that we've got, um, you know, we're, we're winding down. But did y'all see that really stupid fucking thing? Um where people were angry about someone who posted on Twitter about the difference between East Coast and West Coast people. Am I the only one who saw? <laughs> no, sorry, I did not see it. West Coast okay. people make me feel weird inside. Was that the conclusion? No, but close. Um, someone posted that East Coast people 
were not nice, but they were kind. And West Coast people were not kind, but they were nice. And it's the difference between um, an East Coast person telling you, Jesus fucking Christ, the fuck is wrong with you while they help you shovel your car out from a snowbank? Whereas the West Coast people will see your car in a ditch and be like, oh, man, that sucks, and then drive by. See, that feels like the South, too, though. Yes. Well, there's Bless your heart. About the idea of, like, the South <laughs> being, you know, it's like, they're nice, but there's also that whole bless your heart, whereas the Midwest is pure nice, where it's like, yeah, okay, I'll jump in the ditch. I will literally drag the car out with you. And I'll hold it against you your entire life. Well, no. So... <laughs> No, they'll they'll bitch about it the entire time, but then and you have dinner together. It's great. And your right. entire life. Believe me. But so on this. It's <laughs> the idea that we're talking about in terms of it's like it's not about there's a fantastic line from a Joe Kroger song that I think about a lot, which it's like, you know, it's it's not what you said, it's what you did. And and and, and this idea that like you think about, you know, it's like just what are you doing? It's like you can be an asshole when you talk, but are you actually showing up and doing things? Then you know, whatever. It's how yes, I Lara, you're you're a very good person, Lara. You know what? This Ryan, is a, this is also why we didn't ban <laughs> Anthony Scaramucci. Like... <laughs> um, no, that was a perfect example of what you're saying. I got to go fuck yourself, and Ben got an offer for grant writing. Yeah. Well, here's something we also got. (laughs) You were always one of those people who's like, you know, no, he's not particularly nice, but he's very kind. Hmm. So, so the the what can Lara offer? I just I just wanted to mention this because this (laughs) this is this is something this is something that to me I think is worth talking about, and I think it's particularly not go telling people what I can offer because no. (laughs) <laughs> well, so the the beginning of the what the fuck does Lara think segment and the um, the discussion on toxic masculinity there, to be honest, at least for me, one of the reasons it didn't come up is because there there is a a toxic masculinity sized blind spot in my brain that that gets that gets torn down little by little every time I am actively talking about it with somebody. Mm. And so the, the good thing, the good thing about today in particular for me, I mean, the, the grant idea is super, but what's, what's even better for me and what I will remember about this conversation is that how close we got to discussing it and just didn't get there. And that it was really so very, very simple. And and like I said, there's a toxic masculinity size blind spot in my brain that I sincerely want to take down. But um, yeah, I mean that's that's also the the influence of all of that horseshit in me as well. So Wait that was another thing you offered today. That toxic, you know, whiteness. Oh yeah. Well. And toxic, toxic straightness. And toxic ableism. Oh, I can go on. But uh, you know what? One thing at a time. I don't want to overwhelm you. <laughs> I think it's kind of I think it's kind of a lovely note to close on. I think and, so, too. And, uh, I don't know that we've ever closed on a lovely note before. So no. I'm going to say thanks, Biden. 
Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> you know what? Thanks, Biden. And, for, and thanks, Biden's America. And thanks. This is a Biden Harris America, not just a Biden America. Let's be clear. One of yeah, our credit to Eric as well. Yeah. What? <laughs> Harris, not Eric. Oh Jesus. Yes. Also Eric, thank you. Stacy, one of credit to Ryan and credit to Ben for, you know, continuing to break down those toxic masculinity boundaries. Not credit to Eric because obviously he is a secret Trump supporter. No, I'm I'm yeah. What what are you are you saying that I'm the toxic white avenger? You said you were. No, I'm not really. Like you said you were. What's happening here, in my opinion, is that we're having the conversation we normally have after we've wrapped on the air. Yes, oh, yeah. and so you know. like I think it's about time that we close. We're gonna be we're we're gonna play you off with a Scott Joplin piece called "Pineapple Pines." Two separate words: "Pineapple Rag," as performed by Joshua Rifkin. Um, and I would like to inform those listeners who didn't know, as I didn't know, that a bon vivant is a person who enjoys a sociable and luxurious lifestyle. Thank you very much, and if you enjoyed the program, please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Music. Thank you all very much, and I hope to see you, well, not see you, but I hope that you interact or at least lurk on the Internet next time.